Kyra Ruder is a USA Today and Amazon best-selling author who was a highly successful marketing entrepreneur before she took to writing suspenseful psychological thrillers which dig beneath the surface of seemingly perfect lives. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Kyra talks about her latest spine-tingling story, Somebody's Home. Julie Jones has left her suffocating marriage. With her teenage daughter Jess, she's starting over. Their new house is the first step towards a new life. But in a heartbeat, everything can change. Just a reminder, the show notes for this episode can be found on the Joys of Binge Reading website. That's thejoysofbingereading.com. And don't forget, you can also get exclusive bonus content like hearing Kyra's answers to the getting to know you five quickfire questions by becoming a Binge Reading on Patreon supporter. For the cost of less than a cup of coffee a month, you can enjoy exclusive bonus content and have the satisfaction of knowing you're helping the show keep alive. Thank you. It's great to be here. Look, you're on USA Today, Amazon and international best-selling author. You've got eight novels to your credit, but before you started writing, you had an amazing life. You are the mother of four children and you had a highly successful career as an entrepreneur. You wrote an advice book for women entrepreneurs. So you'd almost think that you'd done it all before you even started writing. So what made you feel as if there was something left for you to do? Well, it's funny. I I love that question because I was, you know, I did have a pretty uh, hefty career in marketing and business. And, but since third grade, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. That was just my dream. I wanted to write a novel. And so even from third grade on, that had been in the back of my mind. And then when I ended up writing my first book I wrote was a nonfiction book, which was never in in the plans at all. But when I wrote that book and when I was kind of encapsulating everything I learned from helping mostly women uh, create personal brands and then use those brands to make a, a, a great business, that kind of one of the things I would tell people was, you know, you, you need to live the life of your dreams. You only have one life. And if there's something that you've been dreaming about doing, don't wait, you know, even if it's a side hustle. So I realized when I was going around the country speaking to all these groups of women that I still hadn't done the one thing that I'd always dreamed of doing. Yeah, that's great. Now that book, in case anybody's interested in looking it up, is called Real You Incorporated, Eight Essentials for Women Entrepreneurs. And it is, as you say, focused on real your dreams. So your first, your very first book, which was called Here, Home, Hope, won awards. So you started off with a hiss and a roar. The Indie Excellence Book Awards for starters and the Writer's Digest um, Awards, that theme very much reflected where you'd come from. It was about an achieving woman who examines her life at 39 and finds it wanting. And the tagline on your website is, 
beneath the surface of seemingly perfect lives. And I think if you look through your work, you see that theme being repeated in different ways in your novels. Would it be fair to say they all echo that idea? Yeah, I think you hit it right on the right on the money. I, you know, I, I guess when you start writing as a novelist, but back with Here Home Hope, for example, because I'd had that nonfiction book out in the world, people kind of saw me as a person that would write something that's kind of, you know, like a reference to that book in a fictional way. So that character clearly Kelly popped into my head and she had a lot of things that she wanted to change about her life. And so she keeps a list of on post-it notes all the way through the story. And that actually back then my tagline was sparkling with humor and heart (laughs) because my women's fiction tended to be a little bit lighter and happier. And then I've become progressively darker (laughs) in my stories. And, but I've always been fascinated with what's beneath the surface of seemingly perfect lives. And I, I guess, you know, all along, if, if you kind of peel back the layers of what's happening, that's kind of what my books are doing. They just get progressively deeper behind beneath the surface. Yes. And did that reflect you? Were you a person who left post-it notes everywhere? Oh my gosh. Yeah. If you saw, if you saw my desk right now, or even anybody in my family was up here, they would just be laughing because yeah, my, even my cleaning lady said to me today, she's like, you know, I saw an advertisement for a note system that's like digital. You just write on it. I'm like, no, I cannot live with that post-it notes. There's no way. Yeah. So yes, yes. I have post-it notes. And when I, my husband and I were dating, like, he's like, you are so messy, but I have piles and I know what's in the piles and I know where to find the piles. And so I just kind of said, love me, love my piles. That's, this is kind of how I am. And I'm still like that. Yeah. I think it's true that no matter how perfect a life might seem. I mean, I had years in journalism and the thing that amazed me about doing the interviews that I did in those years was that you could almost bet that every single woman, no matter how beautiful she might be an international model, she would be able to tell you immediately what she was, what was wrong about her or what um, she didn't do very well. And it's something that we all feel inside, I think. So you started off at a good place in the sense of women identifying, but but what was the attraction of that theme to you? Well, I guess it just it is the notion that we all, I mean, especially with social media now, right? We can uh, all pretty much make up what our identity is. <laughs> you, you can just pretend your life into existence in some ways. And and it in many cases, it isn't real. And then you can also start feeling really bad about yourself by comparing yourself to people who are making the pretend existence. So anyway, all of that kind of is in the zeitgeist. And then when you add a pandemic, a global pandemic to the kind of angst and all of us being trapped in our houses, then, you know, not knowing what's outside, I guess probably the environment itself is also adding to why I think beneath the surface is important to examine and also why maybe my stories are getting a little darker right now too. Yes, yes. Now the most recent one, we must mention this first up, Somebody's Home is particularly the one we're talking about because that's the most recently um, published one and several of the main characters in that story are leading lives that just nowhere match up to their public persona. The perfect facade that they present to the world is just so not true of their lives. Was there anything in particular that drew you to that story? I mean, you've got a politician and a a church leader, both of whom 
are failing badly privately while they're presenting this shiny front. Anything in particular that drew you to that story? I mean, I guess that story, Somebody's Home, started in my mind with the character Tom. And it what I did write it during the lockdown part of um, the pandemic. And so when my, you know, four 20-something kids came back home and we were all hunkered down and, and the notion came to me like, well, what if you didn't have a safe home to go to or what if home wasn't safe anymore? And so Tom is a character who has always lived in the same home. He was, he grew up in this home. He's a 20-something guy now, but he, the only thing he really feels attached to is this home and he's living back in the carriage house when his parents need to move and they've sold it. And so it's, they let the new owner said she, he could stay for the weekend to pack up, but then he has to go. And so this, just this notion of this um, man who hasn't grown up really, and he doesn't feel love from anywhere. And this is his last, he's holding on to this sense of place. So that's kind of where that started. And yeah. So if you looked at the house from the outside, you wouldn't know that there was all this seething. <laughs> there was a seething somebody in the carriage house. Yes. And I see that you have actually been very involved with charitable agencies like helping with homelessness and things. And when I was reading about Tom's story, I felt that you had a real empathy for how he was feeling. He's regarded, well, he feels as if his father sees him as a loser. And I guess his father actually really does see him as somebody who hasn't measured up to his expectations. Do you think that your charitable work helps you helped you to become more empathetic to someone like Tom? Yeah, I, I think giving back to your community, however you do it, makes everything better in your life. So you always get back more than what you put into it. So I do feel like having an opportunity to work with homeless people. And I do a lot of work at the food pantry now here too. And realizing that people... People need help, but also that they are helpable. And in the case of this character, you know, he, his mom, his birth mother ran away from his father when he was six years old. And she watched, he watched her leave in the driveway. So if you think, I mean, everybody's got something good about them, right? And so if you think about Tom, who is a, when we meet him, he's a very despicable character <laughs> from the outside and, and kind of hard to love. I think it is important to see something good in everybody. And of course, it's hard to stick with a story all the way through if you just absolutely despise him. Although some people really absolutely despise Tom from the beginning and don't give him any benefit of the doubt. But I think as an author, it's important to see something good in all, all of your characters. Yes, he obviously is incredibly misguided in the way that his thinking has evolved. But, but also that isn't so unusual in the world that we're living in with all of the social media input, is it? I mean, people do seem to manage to get some fairly screwy ideas and get really convinced about them. Yes, yes, totally. And he's he's very much a target of people who like to... to yeah to lure people like him into some kind of belief system or group or, or whatever. And I mean, he's loosely uh, sucked into a kind of militia-ish paramilitary type situation. But I mean, you know, if you're lonely and you're online, there are people who are going to take advantage of that. Yes, it's quite touching that his sense of identity, which is probably very fragile, becomes quite inflated by these guys telling him what a great guy he is. It's something that becomes a bit of a lifeline for him. And Julie Jones, the main character in that, she's leaving a suffocating marriage and starting over again. So she's bought this new house, not at all aware of the situation that she's walking into. And 
it's, it is quite creepy because she comes back to her new house and realizes that somebody is there that she has no idea who he is or why he's there. So it's quite creepy right from the beginning. You're very good at spinning the suspense side of it, I think. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I mean, I can't imagine like, you know, she's trying to be a good person and do a good, nice thing by giving him two days to move out. Right. And it's her chance at a fresh start. And she's so gung ho and her daughter, teenage daughter, she's like moving across town with, and her teenage daughter is convinced her mom's just having a nervous breakdown or something. Can't believe this is happening to her. So she's already got an angsty teenager. And then she realizes what she's let, allowed to stay in the carriage house. And yeah, poor Julie. <laughs> Julie. <laughs> Look, you've had another bestseller, The Favourite Daughter, and it frames the I, that idea in a slightly different way. Its tagline for that one is the perfect home, the perfect family, the perfect lie. And we've referred to this uh, aspect of social media and the power that it's got now. I wonder if our fascination with other people's dirty linen, what does it say to us as people? I mean, you know, everything that's been trawling out in the media, for example, about the Eckstein case, it's its really horrible and yet fascinating at the same time. Right. It's its that whole thing. I mean, we're, uh, I guess, as a society uniquely, I don't know why, but we, we like to build people up. You know, we love celebrity and then we love it when people fall too. So I guess, I, I guess it's just, maybe it's a little bit about making you feel better with your own life. If you can, you know, pick on other people's lives or, you know, you can talk about like, I mean, Epstein's fascinating to me too. And, 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 and like n- numerous ways, but I, uh, yeah, I think it's just, it's hard to turn away sometimes because you see that this monster in that case, Epstein was living like this huge life, Right in front of all of us, right, and and getting away with it. So he, yeah, he's a fascinating case study. But even if it's just somebody that lives down the street from you in your suburb, and they have like the best car and the you know the hottest wife, whatever it is, you know they yeah. they uh, seem to have it all. And finding out that oh yeah, they were part of the college cheating scandal or something like that. <laughs> like I mean, you know, people that's just fascinating to us because what we see is not what at all what we've got. Yes. Yes. Now your books sound like they'd be perfect stories for this environment for TV or film. And I wonder if you've had any nibbles yet in that regard. You know, I've had nibbles, but nothing, <laughs> there's no, no, no fish on the line, Jenny. So, you know, anybody who's, who's interested, I think they would be great too, but um, you know, I'm not in that world. I just have to sit back and hope someday somebody reads one yeah. and says, oh yeah, this will be great. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Look, I read somewhere that a meeting with romance novelist Jane Porter was what encouraged to get you started with the fiction side of things. Tell us about how that happened. Well, actually, all right. So I had written Hear Home Hope and In the Mirror, and I was living, I just moved out to California and I met Jane Porter, trying to think at a mutual friends, like had a bunch of authors over to her house. And Jane said, have you ever tried writing romance? And I'm like, no, never, not once. <laughs> so she's like, do you want to, she had just started a new imprint um, called Tooley Publishing and she wanted to know if I wanted to write for her. So I'm like, sure, I'll give that a try. And so I wrote a, I guess, two, one or two series of romance. And what I found through that was really sh- shocking to me, actually, because I had never thought of it this way, that romance is so empowering for women and all those women that write romance are fabulous. So it led to me speaking at the Romance Writers Association in New York. And I kind of did like a 
twist on my my nonfiction book for women, for um, writers, and did a presentation about that for them, which was great. And I love that. But I also found during my two years of romance <laughs> that I can't write sex scenes. I, I just can't do it. I'm not good at it. I don't want to write them. I can't, you know, so I, I, I mean, I even like the leading up to it part, I'm not good at. So Anywho, so then I decided, okay, perhaps I should segue back into women's fiction, which is what I was working on, like a women's fiction series, when all of a sudden the idea for Best Day Ever popped into my head. And that, as we know, is not women's fiction. It's my first, like, kind of dark, scary book. That's great. And so the romance that you were doing, was that contemporary romance? Yes, it was. Yeah. And so it was called, see, my, I had a series with Jane and it was called Indigo Island Series. And it was based on the Putnam family on this um, sea island off the coast of South Carolina that we used to go to with, when the kids were little. And it's beautiful. It doesn't have a bridge to it. And so it's just this whole, and it has all this gala history there. I love that island. Anyway, so I had a whole series of uh, romance books there, I think four. And I'm interested that you'd already written your your first two books when that happened. Was your first book here, Home Hope, did you indie publish that? I just noticed that you won an indie award and I so I thought perhaps you did indie publish that one. Yeah, I've done every kind of publishing, I think, truly. So I Hear Home Hope was, I think they, I don't know, I have no idea what they call this. I think it's hybrid. I worked with the people at Greenleaf Book Group. Yes. And yeah, and and I had an agent and we kept getting close on the submissions. And quite frankly, I just kind of got impatient because, (laughs) you know, I came from the business world and, and with the marketing background and I'm like, I just need to get going on this career I've decided on. So anyway, so they were great. I worked with Greenleaf Book Group for Hear Home Hope. And then I decided, gosh, you know, with all these Kindle, the, the ability to self-publish had just started bubbling up. And I'm like, you know, that'd be kind of a good skill to learn. So then I self-published, fully self-published um, In the Mirror and All the Difference. And that was really fun too, because I learned, you know, like algorithms and how you set all that stuff up and kind of really, really the nuts and bolts behind the publishing business. And so it was, it was all very helpful. And then Jane's Small Press published my romance. And so by the time Best Day Ever came along and, and we actually sold it to Harper Collins and Harlequin. I think I've had every, <laughs> every single experience and they all were additive. Yeah. So it was a good apprenticeship to getting into one of the big publishers. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And do you, do you like being trade published now? Do you prefer that to Indie? You know, it's still a distribution game. So I think in that realm, yes, because, you know, there's just no competing with that kind of reach as an independent person. I mean, I love the control of being an indie published person and picking the cover and blah, 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 all that stuff. But yes, it's nice to have a professional team with all these years of publishing experience on your side. Yes, sure. Now you've mentioned about having a go at romance. So we'll just look at the genre question again before we pass on to a slightly wider look at things. Why do you think you're drawn to suspense as a genre? I think I always have been. I My very first manuscript I ever wrote that no one will ever see was in suspense. It was a domestic suspense, meaning set in the suburbs, bad things happening within a family uh, setting. And when I look back on that, I'm like, oh my goodness, this was where I was meant to be, I think. And I just kind of got led 
into like softer women's fiction by the fact that I had done that nonfiction book to begin with. But I mean, if you read even in the mirror, which is about a woman, young mom who has this cancer diagnosis, that's it's, you know, it's heart wrenching, but there's in there, there's also like a suspense story too. So I, I think I've always been kind of leaning in that direction and it just, it speaks to me. It's just the it is. It's the, those who you love can hurt you the worst, right? Yes. Yes. And so with your fiction, were you doing any fiction writing before you actually turned around and decided I'm going to give this a go after your nonfiction book? Were you, were you the sort of person who all through your life did a weeny bit of fiction writing on the side? I'd say yes. I, you know, when I graduated, I was an English lit major. And so my first jobs were all either in magazines or newspapers. And I had a society column for a long time on the side in back in Ohio. So I was always writing something, even if I was doing marketing and, and marketing, my career there was all through like copywriting and public relations and TV, right? All that kind of different writing. So I've always been writing something and I, I dabble a little bit in poetry, but I'd say, yes, I, I if I'm not writing, I, I wouldn't be happy. So fictionally though, I think getting the courage, I mean, even I remember my first byline for the newspaper was really scary for me. That was like, you know, putting yourself out there and having, gosh, people read your work. So I didn't write anything for publication all through college and high school, just a couple of poems. So, you know, it was a big step. And so doing the the book thing. I think it did take me going around the country and helping other people live their dreams to to make myself have the confidence to go on and do it. (laughs) You told all these people to do it. Now you'd go do it. It's fabulous. We're taking a short break and we'll be back with Kyra Ruda in no time at all. Dangerous Desires, book 10 in the Of Gold and Blood Mystery series, is just out, as we mentioned earlier. You might be lucky and win one of the 10 copies we've got going up in the draw for this week's episode. But if you miss out on that, or if you want to get your hands on it for sure, then you can buy it at the special launch price of $1.99 for a limited time. It's available at all of your favorite digital stores. And now we're back with Kyra Ruda. Look, turning away from talking about the specific books, I know that you started a real estate agency. One of your claims to fame was that you started a real estate agency that became represented in 22 states and probably the little, you know, crown on it all was that it was bought by Warren Buffett's investment um, vehicle. Tell us how that part happened. That was a lot more than just doing marketing, wasn't it, really? It was quite a major thing. Yeah, you know, it life is just funny how it twists and turns, right? So I was in my marketing career working at ad agencies and then ended up going in-house for a company called Stanley Steamer, which is a carpet cleaning firm and franchiser. And I was first woman to work there as vice president. And I had an office on the wall where you have your own door and window and all that good stuff. And then while I was there, and it was a great learning experience, but I had to leave because I had to file a class action lawsuit for gender <laughs> discrimination and sexual harassment. So suddenly I was free. And my husband at the same time had rolled up three real estate companies and it included like 20 different brands within Ohio. And he needed someone to help bring a brand to life that would kind of be the umbrella brand for all of those. So I said, oh, suddenly I'm free. So I would like to do that. So it was really great. I, you know, working with him, we created Real Living and 
what, what I learned through my marketing days was that women make or control 91% of all home buying decisions. I mean, they have the power of the person. Back in the 2000s, when we launched this, people would still refer to the consumer as a man in almost every category of consumer goods. So we launched the first women-facing consumer real estate brand, acknowledging women have the power of the transaction. And not only that, they're also 60, back then 69% of all real estate agents were women too. And it was one of the first careers a woman could make as much as a man could. There was no ceiling there. So Anyway, there was all kinds of reasons why it made sense to target women as the primary consumer in the real estate transaction. And that, I think, is what caught on to be able to franchise it in 22 states. And everything was going great until the little recession <laughs> recession hit. And then we needed some help from some big guys. So that's we actually first sold to Brookfield Hathaway, which is a Canadian company. And they had bought another franchise system that they couldn't keep the name from. So I tweeted the head of that literally through a tweet. I said, hey, Real Living's looking to grow and you need a name. How about we work together? And that, so we first sold to Brookfield and then, yeah, then Warren Buffett later on, which is great. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. Just looking back then over this wonderful career in both marketing and writing, if there was one thing that you saw as the secret of your success, what would it be? I'd say resilience. I mean, I really do think that, you know, everybody and no matter how perfect it looks, will have their ups and downs and their rejections, you know, publishing's filled with it. And so is any other business, right? So if you can have faith in yourself and the resilience to just keep going, things will work out. I mean, the only reason or the only way I tell this to my kids too, I've got two, all four of them are creative, but two who are pursuing careers in the creative field, a singer, songwriter, and a screenwriter. The only way that you don't be successful in that career you've chosen, which is really hard, is if you give up, because guarantee you won't make it if you give up. So I think resilience. Yeah. Now, when you started out with your fiction career, what was your main goal and have you by now far exceeded it? You know, I, I would say, I guess the first goal is like getting a finished novel or manuscript finished, right? And then, so that, that would have been my first goal. And then I know, okay, so then I always wanted to go to one of those big expos in the book publishing world, right? I would see, you know, other people I knew, like Jane Porter would be at these big books expos. So um, when Best Day Ever was my first breakthrough with the big guys and they acquired it. And then they called a little later and said, oh, hey, we're going to make this hardcover. I'm like, get out. And then they called a little later and said, oh, we're going to start a new imprint and your title's going to lead the imprint. I'm like, get out. And then they said, we're going to fly you to BEA, Book Expo of America, and you can you know, have a signing and meet all the people in the publishing world. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. So they flew me there. I get to New York and I walk in the Javits Center and literally like just coming in the door and I look up and my book is on a banner that had to, like, to me, it was like 12 stories high. I don't know how big it was, but just seeing that. And I mean, I, I stopped in my tracks and just went ah, like that. And this guy was signing people up for American Express cards right next to me. And he's like, are you okay? He thought I was having a stroke or something. And I'm like, that's my book right there up there. And he's like, oh my gosh, you need a picture. And so he's taking pictures for me. Anyway, so I would have said like, that would that would be my goal. But I, you know, I, and, and you try like each happy thing that happens, you hold on to those because then you're going to go Meow. like, like, you know, you just can't like nothing. Yeah. So I don't really have another goal. I guess I just would keep loving to, uh, you know, keep writing and keep having people enjoy my books. And that would 
probably be the same as when I sat down to write Here Home Hope. It's just, I want to do this and hopefully people will like what I write and then I can keep doing it. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that is the case still today. So far, so good. (laughs) (laughs) That's lovely. So because it is the joys of binge reading, we do like to talk about books that people really enjoy reading. We do really focus on the popular fiction. I imagine you have been a reader your whole life when you've had the time with all the other things that you've managed to do as well. What do you like to read and what would you like to recommend to our listeners? Well, I, you know, I've always been a big reader in the suspense world. I mean, I remember, you know, my Nancy Drews growing up and uh, then all the Sue Craftons and I mean, I just, Susan Isaacs, any of those, I guess like were kind of my inspiration. So I love to read in the area that I write in, which is really nice too. But I also like to read more widely. I would say during the pandemic, my attention span has been terrible. So it's been very hard to concentrate on books. I don't know if you found that, but I've talked to other people and they have the same thing. I can sit down and write and concentrate, but if I get a book, I'll all of a sudden go, like veer off. That said, I'm I'm trying to like, just make myself before bed. Like just, you're going to sit down and read. And I've been uh, fortunate to be sent some advanced reader copies by some really amazing authors that that are stacked next to my bed. So I'm going to get to those. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I, I always say, and I'll say again, that Shirley Jackson's The Lottery was, I think, the thing that got me into involved in this realm because it was just so shocking and surprising. And I was recently just re- revisiting her, her work. And I don't know, she was, she was such an amazing writer. I don't know her actually, to be honest. So, oh, yeah. oh, 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 okay. You've got to just, okay, read the lottery and then you'll see what I'm talking about. And then she was a mom of four and grew up in the suburbs. I mean, she raised her kids in the suburbs. Her husband was a famous critic. And so he got most of the attention while they were a married couple. But she, I just read her like kind of autobiography, autobiography memoir-ish thing. But, but we in the States have to read, at least we did in like advanced English classes, this short story called The Lottery. And it changed my life. <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit more about that. How did it affect you that way? You know, I don't, I mean, just because, and I can't say too much about it because I don't want yeah. to give it away yeah. because it, yeah. you know, it seems like you seem like you're in this rural town where this like lovely tradition is starting. Once a year, they do this lovely tradition and the the pace of the writing, the tone is like, you know, it's seemingly perfect town. And then from there, it just all chaos breaks loose. And I just never, I guess just that, that way that all is not what it seems is kind of where that yes. first came from, I think. Yeah. yeah. Look, looking back down the tunnel of time, If there was one thing about your creative career that you would change, what would it be? Oh, I know, because I'm I'm just learning this now. (laughs) Is to be more grateful for editorial letters and less like taking it personally like I've been, I've failed. And my daughter is actually the one who is teaching me that lesson because I think being somewhat of a perfectionist that once I submit my story, I'm like, it's done, you know, (laughs) I know you're going to love it. And then, you know, no, because it has to go through all these different rounds of editorial letters and direction changes and character tweaks and all that. And I really did. I like took it personally. I'd get one of those letters. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't even. And you know, for days I'd mope around. And so now I've been redefining that in my brain, thanks to my daughter and saying, 
Avery's like, mom, you should be grateful. All these people care enough about your work to give you their input and feedback and take it like that. I'm like, right, that is a grown up thing to do. Correct. Yes. And is she one of your creatives? She is. She's my screenwriter. And actually she and I wrote a pilot episode for a series for the favorite daughter together, which is really fun because there's a mom and a teenage daughter in it. And Avery's in her twenties now, but she can still channel the teenage daughter. And she always helps me with uh, dialogue when I have a teenager or early 20 something woman in my books. Great. It sounds like she's got the right attitude because screenwriting is certainly a very collaborative process, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's so different than novel writing. It's such a gift. I mean, I watch what she does and I'm just mesmerized because you have so few words to say so much in scenes. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for Cara, the writer, looking down the next 12 months? What have you got on your desk? Well, um, as you know, Somebody's Home is out now and I've been doing the virtual book tour. This is my second pandemic book release. Yay me. <laughs> so <laughs> I had uh, The Next Wife came out last May and that was during the pandemic. So I was, you know, zooming all over the place and now I'm zooming again for Somebody's Home. And I have another book called The Widow is coming out in November. So that's exciting. It's my first time ever having two books in the same year. So here we go. <laughs> here we go. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And are you able to say anything about what you're actually working on? Have you got a new oh, one started? At the moment, yes. I just submitted my next one, hopefully, if they like it. Okay, so here comes here comes the letter I'm going to be dreading. But anyway, I just submitted <laughs> my next one to my um, agents, and that will be, we'll see what they say. Hopefully, they like it. Great. Look, I know with the pandemic that we haven't been able to interact with readers in person as much, but interacting with your readers online, where can they find you online and do you enjoy that process? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I really like social media for books. I mean, as long as we're talking books, I love it. (laughs) So (laughs) I I am all over the place. I'm on Instagram, of course, under my name and Twitter, Facebook. I have a Facebook page called Kara Ruta Books, and I just started a club with my two of my friends, two authors, and we are, we started the killer author club. So every two weeks we are hosting a different author and we talk to her, usually her, sometimes him about why they like to kill, how they kill uh, in their stories, of course. So that's been really fun too, because we've been having fun, you know, it gives us like a social outing every two weeks to kind of talk about. So that's fun. Yeah. So I'm pretty much love to engage with readers online and in all those different places. And the Killer Club, is that's a podcast, is it? No, we haven't done a podcast yet, but we were thinking about maybe we're only on episode three. So we just started this, but uh, we've been just streaming it to YouTube and Facebook Live. Okay. But yeah. yeah, It's been yeah. fun. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, look, thank you so much, Cara. It's been great talking. Oh, thank you. Great questions, Jenny. I really appreciate them. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, we have Raina Marda Genton, a former criminal appellate attorney who turned her hand to writing about crime rather than sitting on the bench and judging it. Her latest novel, Both Are True, examines the temptations a woman judge faces when her personal and professional lives collide. That's next week here on The Joys of Binge Reading. That's it for today. 
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can be sure not to miss out next week. And if you'd like to go that extra mile and support us on Binge Reading on Patreon, we'd be so grateful. Check it out on Binge Reading on Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. Until next time and happy reading.